have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue our series in the book of Acts today. I'm very excited uh, just to be able, it's, a, it's always an honor and a privilege to be able to open up the Word of God and share it with you. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, turning on the news is a pretty bleak proposition these days. <clears throat> I, uh, I don't have cable at home, so all my news I get online. So I was scrolling through, and I just want to read you some of the headlines that I found just this week. Um, alligator bites down on diver's head in Florida. These are real, by the way. I'm not making these up. These are real. Uh, Alabama teen fatally shot nearly 12 years after his father. California man dies in fall of one of state's highest peaks. Italy cable car crash. Boy, five, is only survivor after cabin plunges down mountain. And if I recall correctly, there were 14 fatalities in that accident. And when I read these headlines, I can't help but think that this is not how God intended the world to function. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created the world, and it was very good. But then in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the picture. And because of the curse of sin, we live in a broken, messy, decaying, and damaged world where human suffering is a reality. And believers, you and I, we are not exempt. We're not exempt. And in our text this morning, we're going to come face to face with human suffering. But before we jump into the text, I I want to take just a minute and define exactly what I'm talking about when I reference human suffering. So human suffering is a reality. It normally stems from one of three places. First, suffering is sometimes the result of our own sinfulness. Sin has consequences. And sometimes we suffer because of the consequences of our sin. We've already seen this in the book of Acts. If you remember back to Acts chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and God judges them for their sinfulness, and he kills them. He kills them. Sometimes suffering is the result of our own sin. But sometimes suffering is also the result of external persecution. We've seen this in the book of Acts as well. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is martyred, and the opening of Acts chapter 8 is that Saul is persecuting the church. And, and, it's, and it's a violent persecution. We know that God used it, and because of that, he used that persecution to accomplish his will. And the gospel is spread out from Jerusalem, and it goes to Judea, and it goes into Samaria. But we have to understand that suffering is a result sometimes of external persecution. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 tells us that, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a reality. But sometimes, suffering is simply the reality of living in a sin-cursed and broken world. And this is the reality that I think that we see in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Do you realize that the curse of sin didn't just affect people? The curse of sin affected the earth as well. And the Bible says that because of sin now, all of nature groans and nature longs for the day that it will be redeemed. The world isn't functioning the way that God initially intended. Sin has corrupted God's creation. 
Yet, God not only allows human suffering in our world today, but he actively uses it to accomplish his will. And that should be an encouraging thought for you and I. That our suffering is not pointless. It is not meaningless. It is not just something that happens because we are here. God allows it, but he not only allows it, he uses it in your life and mine. The question that we have to wrestle through as believers is why? (laughs) Out of all the things that God could use, why does he choose to use human suffering in our lives? Why does God use it? Does my pain have eternal value? And I think that this is why Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43 is so important. And it provides encouraging answers for saints who are suffering. But before we jump into our text, I need to tell you a couple of things. Okay, first of all, I have to tell you what this text is not. Okay, we're going to be talking about some incredible acts of healing that happen in this text. Okay, Peter is going to heal a paralyzed individual. And Peter is going to raise a woman from the dead. And so as I was studying this text, and as I was praying and asking the Holy Spirit for help, I really had to wrestle through, okay, so what in the world does this mean for you and me? Because there's a couple things that this text isn't. This text is not a theological essay on the gift of healing, okay? So Luke's purpose in writing this text is to encourage his readers and not to provide them with an overview of spiritual giftedness. So we need to understand that right up front. And Luke's purpose is to encourage the church. My goal today is to encourage you as well. But we have to take the text at face value and understand what it is. Not only that, but this text is not an invitation for us to go and follow Peter's example. So miracles were used at specific time for specific purposes. And they validated the truth of the God-given message that was being proclaimed. And so signs and wonders in the book of Acts are used by the apostles to demonstrate the truth of the gospel that they were proclaiming in their preaching and in their letter writing. Today, God has given us his completed word, and that gives us everything that we need. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Okay, so signs and wonders are now no longer need. We don't have the need to validate God's truth in the way that they needed it in the book of Acts. We need to understand that. So my application today is not going to be go be like Peter. We're not going to get in our cars and drive over to Memorial Hermon and start trying to heal people. I don't think that that's what this text is trying to teach us. Now, God, can God miraculously heal today? Absolutely, he can. He's God, and we are not. And we don't want to put God in a box. God can do whatever he wants to. But we need to understand that God miraculously healing in this way is the exception and not the norm. It's the exception and not the norm. So the question then is, what does this text mean for you and I in the local church? Well, let me tell you what this text is. That's what it's not. Let me tell you what it is. I believe that this text is a beautiful picture of God's power on full display in the midst of a broken and a sin-cursed world. We serve an all-powerful God, and we serve a God that still works in the world today. And this text reminds us of that. This text is also an encouraging reminder that God uses human suffering to advance his divine agenda. And I think that the text also provides us with a snapshot, a Kodak moment, if you will, of a future reality that we're going to enjoy for all of eternity. So I'm excited for the opportunity to present this text to you. But before we get into the text of Scripture this morning, let's ask the Lord to help us to rightfully divide the word of truth, to understand 
All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to examine your word this morning. This is a great, a great text, challenging text. But I pray that uh, you'll help me this morning to rightfully divide the word of truth, to preach the message that I believe that you would have me to proclaim. We'll give you the honor and the glory for it because you're the one that deserves it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 9. Look at me, let's start in verse 31. This is where we left off last week in verse 31. So Paul, Saul, and Paul, have, have they come into the church, right? We, we talked about uh, Saul and Barnabas last week. Uh, there's persecution against Saul. He leaves Jerusalem. But look at the condition of the church in verse 31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and they were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and they were multiplied. So because the church now has peace, Peter is able to leave Jerusalem, and he goes to check on some of the churches in the outlying areas. And in verse 32, it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he's in the area of Judea, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. Lydda here, it's a, it's a medium-sized city. And it's possible that the church that was here is started by the evangelist Philip. If you remember, after, P after Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Holy Spirit takes him and drops him in the city of Azotus. And then it tells us that Philip traveled from Azotus to Caesarea. Well, the city of Lydda is right in between Azotus and Caesarea. So it could be possible that after Philip has preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, on his way to Caesarea, he stops in Lydda, he preaches the gospel, People are converted and a church is started. And now Peter is going to visit that church. And then in verse 33, and there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed for eight years and he was sick of the palsy. This is an uncurable condition. Aeneas has been paralyzed for eight years. The text doesn't tell us how. Perhaps it was a work accident or some kind of other fluke injury, whatever it was, he is paralyzed, but it's an uncurable condition. He's been this way for eight years. And his condition is apparently known by all of the citizens in Lydda. We'll see that in verse 35. And in verse 34, Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. I think it's interesting that this healing is unprompted. Aeneas doesn't come and beg Peter for healing but rather Peter sees this man and says, arise. It's unprompted. And this healing is total and it's immediate. As soon as Peter proclaims it, Aeneas pops up, right? And there's healing that happens. And it's not Peter that does this. Who does he say is responsible for this miracle? It's Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus Christ heals this man. Peter, Peter is the vehicle by which that healing is accomplished. Now, what's the result? Look at, the, at verse 35. And all that dwell in Lydda and Sharon, that's the plain of Sharon, it's about a 40-mile area. All that dwell at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So in the residents of the city and the entire plain of Sharon, when they saw Aeneas, they recognized the power of the gospel that was being proclaimed by Peter and the other apostles. And many people turned to Christ and were saved as a result. And then the story shifts. Sorry. I mean, we, I, we could preach that and be good, right? But, but now the story shifts. Look at verse 36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation 
was called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. So the story turns to Joppa. And Joppa at one time was the preeminent port city on the Israelite coast. But when Herod became king, he didn't really like the city. So he built a new port in Caesarea. And after that happened, Joppa became a a second-rate city. Kind of became dilapidated and fell into disarray. And it wasn't like a tourist destination is what I'm saying. Okay? And so, but the story shifts to this, to this location. And there, there's a woman. And this woman is named Tabitha. What's really interesting here is she's called the disciple. It's the only time. So the word, the word disciple, we see that over and over again in Scripture. But this is the only time that this word is used in the, in the feminine tense in the entire New Testament. So every other time that we see the word disciple in the New Testament, it's used in the masculine. But here, there's something special about Tabitha, and she is described as a disciple. It's the only time we see this word used this way in the entire New Testament. I think Tabitha is a disciple maker. I think that she is actively making disciples in her local church community at Joppa. Let me show you why I think that. All right, first of all, the widows here, they grieve over her death. Having them singled out, having the widows singled out in this way seems to indicate that she has a special ministry to that group. Not only that, but she was actively investing in the lives of others. Look at verse 36. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. Look down at verse 39. The widow stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. So this woman was caring for these group of individuals, not just physically, but also spiritually. She seems to be a in the church and she is growing in her relationship with Jesus Christ and she is bringing these other women along these other women along with her this is a woman who was a fixture in the church she was making a difference she was helping people grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ she was caring for them look at what happens in verse 37 it came to pass in those days that she was sick and she died and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lida was nigh to Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there, and they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. So the disciples that were in Joppa certainly would have heard about Peter's healing of Aeneas. The cities are only about nine miles apart. And now two men come after Tabitha is dead. These two men come to Peter, and they ask him to come. And the question that I have to ask here is why? After she is already dead, why do they ask Peter to come? And I think that they are expecting for Peter to heal her. I think that they are expecting for Peter to do a miracle. And I say, man, what faith. What faith. These individuals come to Peter and they ask him to come. Now look at verse 39. When Peter arose and went with them, and when he was come, he brought them into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping. And showing the coats and the garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. And Peter put them all forth. And he kneeled down and he prayed. And turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I think what's really interesting here is that Peter follows the Lord's example. Peter's never raised anybody from the dead before. But he does have a point of reference. If you were to go back to the book of Mark in chapter 5 and read about Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, there are some striking, and Peter was there when that happened, there are some striking similarities between that account and this one. We won't take the time to look at it this morning, but I think it's interesting that when Peter is tasked 
with this. And as he's looking at this precious saint who has died, he recalls back the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he raises this woman back to life. And again, it's not Peter that is doing this. Peter is simply the vehicle. But notice that Peter prays and he asks. It's obviously the power of God that is doing this. But Peter is the vehicle by which Tabitha is raised back to life. Again, the healing is total and it's immediate. Look at verse 41. And he gave her his hand. He lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Peter presenting Tabitha to the church, particularly to the widows in this way, would have been an incredible gift to this congregation. And notice the result again in verse 42. And it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. When news of this resurrection spreads, God's power again validates the truths of the gospel that the Christian community is proclaiming. And people see that and they say, God is behind this message and they believe and they turn to the Lord in an incredible way. And it came to pass in verse 33 that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon the Tanner. So these stories of healing bring into focus Two realities. I mean, these things jump off the page to me when I read these texts. The first one is this. God's saints suffer. Can't get around it. And when you look at these texts, I see three people groups. Aeneas, the paralytic for eight years. You see Tabitha, who falls sick with an illness and dies. And we see the saints and the widows in Joppa who are grieving over her death. God's saints suffer. It's a reality. But the second reality that I see here is that God's power breaks the curse of sin and it puts the truth of the gospel on full display. These are great stories. These are great stories. But the question becomes, who cares, right? So these are awesome stories for the church in the first century. And as Luke writes this, and as the people that were there would have read this, they would have been encouraged. and They would have been, yeah, remember what God did? This is awesome. But how does this impact you and me? How do the stories of Aeneas and Tabitha impact our lives today? Does Acts 9 verses 32 through 43 encourage those of us who are enduring suffering and pain in our lives today? And I think that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. I do think that this text matters. So let me take the next few minutes and let me show you four simple principles from this text that I hope, that I pray will be an encouragement to you when we think about human suffering and God's saints. The first is this. Suffering saints are cared for by God. Suffering saints are cared for by God. God demonstrates care for his people in this text. Consider Aeneas. Aeneas is a simple saint who receives grace. If you notice about him in the text, there's nothing really remarkable about him in Acts chapter 9. It doesn't say anything about his skills. It doesn't say anything about his character. It doesn't say anything about his ministry. Aeneas is just a man. But he's not just a man because he is a man who experiences the grace of of God, and who experienced the power of God in a real and a unique way. God, through Peter, chose to show this man grace. Grace is not earned, it's freely given. God cares for his saints by providing them grace. But not only does God care for his saints by providing them grace, but God cares about his saints by providing them life. 
And this is what I see with Tabitha. Tabitha's death grieved the Christian community, and her death was especially damaging to the widows. Her life and her testimony and her disciple-making, it led the church to ask Peter to come even after her death. And God showed his care for Tabitha by giving her her breath. And not only that, but a grieving church was gifted with a precious saint. Tabitha was a fixture in the church at Joppa, and these widows seemed to depend on her for both their physical needs and their spiritual development. And God, in his care for the church, and particularly these widows, restores Tabitha back to life. That the widows are singled out in verse 41 shows me that they were especially blessed when Tabitha was raised up from the dead. God demonstrates his care for his saints. And you know something? God demonstrates his care for you and I in the same way. Demonstrates his care for you and I in the same way. God has given us grace. God has given us grace. God has given us grace for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you are in suffering, and if you are in pain, you can always be thankful for the grace of God that has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God has given us grace for salvation. But not only has God given us grace for salvation, God gives us grace to endure in the midst of our present suffering. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. And Paul prayed for three times for that thorn in the flesh to go away. And God said no. God said no, but look at what God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. He says, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. What then is Paul's response? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Not only does God give you grace for salvation, God gives you grace to endure in the midst of your present difficulty. His grace is always sufficient, and God will never give you above what you are able to handle. We are suffering today. We need to rest in the grace of God. He gives us grace to endure. And not only does God give us grace to endure, but God also gives us community. God gives us community. Oh, sorry, I skipped one. (laughs) God has given us grace. God has also given us life. That's an important one. Let's not skip that one. Okay? God has given us grace. God has also given us life. He's given us life. God has given us a present physical life in which our sufferings can be tools for you and I to bring honor and glory to God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. And what then is the response? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. God has given us life. And not only has he given us life, but he's given us this life as an opportunity to bring him honor and glory. God can get honor and glory anywhere that he wants to, but he chooses to use you and I as vehicles to show forth his glory. He's also given us a future incorruptible life. 
in which our faith will be sight. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And the life that God gives us is present, and we can give him glory in it now, but understand that the life that he gives us is also future. And that future life is perfect when we will be redeemed and we will finally be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ because we will see him and our faith will be sight. What a day that will be. So God's given us grace. He's also given us life. And finally, God has given us community. God has given us community. The church is a spiritual family. Families are designed to care for one another. Now, it doesn't always happen this way. Again, we live in a sin-cursed and broken and messy world. But the church is a family. And families are designed and they are intended to care for one another. And I believe that God intends for suffering saints to find comfort and help in the midst of their spiritual communities. James chapter 1 and verse 27, James defines religion this way. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith. I have to say, I, I am thankful for our church. And I'm grateful for our church. And I feel like this is something that our church does very well. And on Monday mornings when we sit in our staff meetings and we recap from the previous week and we talk over the weekend and we tell story after story of how God is using you as Barnabases, as, as individuals who are showing forth the love and the care of Christ to other people. Philippians, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I genuinely believe that that's true in our community, community of faith right here at Arise. But let me encourage you, don't, don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the church is a tool that God uses to comfort suffering saints. The church is never designed to be a mausoleum. The church is designed to be a hospital for broken and hurting people. And you and I are tools that God can use to bring comfort and grace to suffering and hurting people. Philippians chapter two says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This requires us to be intentional because sometimes we can walk in the building and be plugged into our phone, plugged into the fight that we had in the car on the way to church, right? Or our pilot light wasn't lit this morning or whatever the case may be, right? We come in and we have struggles. We have suffering, difficulty. That segued really well. He didn't even know it, all right? So, so these, things, these things happen and we can walk in the doors and be so self-absorbed and self-focused that we miss hurting people around us. We have to be intentional to walk in, lift up our eyes, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. God cares for us in the midst of our suffering because he gives us grace, he gives us life, and he gives us community. In the midst of your suffering, remember that your loving God cares for you. But not only does God care for us, he also ensures that our present suffering has purpose. Our suffering has eternal purpose. 
I see two results of human suffering in this text. The first is that I see that the gospel of God is magnified. That's in verse 35 and verse 42 when it says that those that dwelt there saw him when they heard the Tabitha was raised, that they turned to the Lord. The gospel of God is magnified. But not only that, but the church of God is blessed. But we have to ask the question, right? We have to ask the question, where was God when Aeneas had his accident? Where was God when Aeneas became a paralytic? And where was God when he laid on his bed for eight years, unable to adequately provide and care for himself? Where was God when Tabitha is struck by a virus, laying on her bed, burning up with a fever, with grieving widows surrounding her, trying to care for her in her time of greatest need with her breast slipping away? Where is God? Where is God when his saints suffer? And I can't always give you a concrete answer to that. But I can tell you something beyond a shadow of a doubt. And what I can tell you is this. God allowed the suffering of Aeneas. And God allowed the death of Tabitha. Because what it did was it facilitated the spiritually healing, sin-breaking power of the gospel to shine forth in a public and a powerful way. So I can't always tell you why, but I can tell you that God used it to magnify the power of the gospel. But not only that, God used this suffering to bless the church of God. And that's what I see in verse 41. When Tabitha is presented back to the church, the church is able here to witness the gospel on full display. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Because Peter sends them all out of the room. So imagine that we were all here sitting in a room like this. And Peter is off with the body. And can you just imagine? I can just imagine that there would be like a low buzz going on in this room. And some people are praying. Some people are talking. Some people are just sitting. There's just kind of a low hum. Can you imagine the explosion of emotion when Peter comes walking through the back door, leading Tabitha by the hand, and she's alive? Can you imagine what that would have been like? And the church here experiences the power of God on full display in an incredible and a unique way. But not only that, not only that, the church was also able to reap the benefits of sinners experiencing the life-changing power of the gospel. So people come to Christ, and the churches are growing. So Peter comes, the gospel of God is magnified, and the church grows as a result. Man, the church is blessed as a result of this event. And not only that, but the church is also overjoyed to experience the restoration of this precious woman. So the gospel is magnified and the church is blessed. Can I encourage you this morning? Your suffering has eternal value. Your suffering has eternal value. I see three ways that your suffering has eternal value. First of all, your suffering is working out gospel realities in your own life. Your suffering is working out gospel realities in your own life. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience or endurance. 
But let endurance have her perfect work that ye may be what? Perfect, complete, mature, and entire, lacking in nothing. Your suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is to grow you and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it really succinctly in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. For we know that all things, including your suffering, work together for good. Now, if you go back and look at Romans chapter 8, the good there, in context, is Christ-likeness. So the good there isn't necessarily a promotion or a raise or things that make you feel good. Okay, that's not how we define good in this text. But rather, the good is Christ-likeness. The good is you developing and shaping into the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that all things, including your pain, work together to grow you into the image of Jesus Christ. Your suffering has eternal value. But not only is it working out gospel realities in your own life, it is also magnifying the truths of the gospel to others. Paul writes the book of Philippians when he's in prison. And in verses 12 through 14, he says this, the things which have happened unto me. And think about what's happened unto Paul. He's been in prison. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. The one that's the worst to me is he got bit by a snake. All right? I don't do snakes. All right? All these things, all these things happened to Paul. Okay? And he says, the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto what? The furtherance of the gospel. Paul says, my suffering has magnified the gospel. And not only that, he says, my bonds are manifest in all the palace. Many of the brethren in the Lord, get this, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Your suffering magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has eternal value. But not only that, your suffering is also a source of blessing for the church. I don't want you to miss this. Flip over real quick to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Okay, look with me in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I'm glad when we talk about things like human suffering that we serve the God of all comfort. Look at verse 2, or verse 4, I'm sorry. Who comfort us, comforteth us in all of our tribulation. Now, get this. That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that God may be putting you through a difficult time right now because down the line, there's somebody that's going through the similar circumstance and you can come and put your arm around him and say, I know exactly what you're going through. Your suffering blesses the church. This is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. In the book of Hebrews, it says, we don't have a high priest, cannot be in touch with the feelings of our infirmities. But when all points, he was tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ knows exactly where we're at. He knows exactly what we're going through. And he knows exactly our pain and suffering because he's been there, done that. 
And you and I might be going through similar circumstances in our own life because there's somebody else sitting in this room that needs you to do it. And your suffering is a blessing for the church. So God uses your suffering to work for you and in you and through you to proclaim the gospel, to grow you in grace and to encourage the church. But not only does your suffering have eternal value, I also want you to see number three here, that God uses suffering saints to advance God's agenda. God uses suffering saints to advance God's agenda. When we think of the overall outline of the book of Acts, we go back to Acts chapter 1-8. Christ tells the apostles, you will be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you look in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, where has the gospel gone? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. God's agenda hasn't been fulfilled yet. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. So God uses the suffering of his saints to put Peter in the right place. I'm not going to take Pastor Will's sermon for next week. But if you go and you read ahead in Acts chapter 10, we're about to see that the gospel is about to explode onto the stage for the Gentiles in the first time. In a real, like, powerful way. The gospel is about to go to the Gentiles. And the uttermost parts of the earth is chapter 10 through the rest of the book of Acts. But how does it happen? God has to put Peter in the right place at the right time so that the gospel can go forth to the Gentiles. So God put Peter in the right place. He put him with Simon the Tanner, Simon the Tanner in verse 43. Now look down in chapter 10 and verse 5 and 6. God is talking to Cornelius. And look at what he tells him. He says, and now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. Where is he staying? Well, he lodgeth with one Simon the Tanner whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And you know, I, I just look at this and I say, God could have used any number of ways to direct Peter to Joppa. But what he chose to use is he chose to use suffering saints to lead Peter to right to where he needed to go. We don't understand always why God is doing what he is doing. And we don't always understand the need for our pain. But I think that we can be encouraged by the reality that God actively uses our suffering to advance his agenda. And I don't know about you. I'm a Gentile. I think that most of us in this room probably are. Aren't you glad that God advanced his agenda in the book of Acts? I hope that you are. Because without it, you wouldn't be sitting here. But I'm also very cognizant of the tools that God used. God used human suffering to bring the gospel to the brink of being shared out to the Gentile nations. We have to understand that God does use human suffering to advance his agenda. And while that's a sobering thought, I think it's also a very encouraging thought. That our suffering is not pointless, but our suffering serves God's divine purposes. God used a paralytic and a suffering church community to help the gospel move to the uttermost parts of the earth. God used real, raw pain to advance his eternal agenda. I don't, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I certainly don't know the pain of your experience, but I do know that God can and will use your suffering to advance his agenda and to accomplish his will. 
And finally, this morning, I want you to see that suffering encourages saints to focus on eternity. Suffering encourages saints to focus on eternity. The world that we live in is still broken. Eventually, Aeneas and Tabitha passed away. And they moved off the scene. Pain, sickness, and death are all realities in our sin-cursed world. Anybody remember 2020? Okay. I think we understand this. Okay, this is real. And we live in a world where pain is real. And this is something that all of us experience. But I do want to encourage you because while our suffering is real, it is also temporary. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is that living hope? It's this. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Your present suffering should cause you to long for the day when we get to see and savor Jesus Christ forever. One writer put it this way, your present, or, uh, one writer put it this way, anticipating heaven doesn't eliminate pain, but it lessens it and it puts it into perspective. Meditating on heaven is a great pain reliever. It reminds us that suffering and death are temporary conditions. Our existence will not end in suffering and death because they are but a gateway to our eternal life of unending joy. And you and I, in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our suffering, it should cause us to long for the day when we get to see and savor God forever. Then, then we will be able to echo the words of the Apostle Paul when he says, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43 does, is it provides us with a beautiful picture. It provides us with a snapshot of the future reality that we have in Christ a reality where this sin-corrupted world is finally redeemed and we will enjoy a perfect, glorified existence with our all-powerful Savior. And if I was to boil this text down into one big idea this morning, it would be this. If you are suffering this morning, be encouraged. Because God is actively working for you and in you and through you for his glory and for your good. Elizabeth Elliot was a true pioneer in the world of Christian missions. She attended Wheaton College and she studied Greek because she wanted to translate the Bible in the remote regions of the world. You have to have some tenacity to major in Greek in college, by the way. All right, so uh, she studied Greek, wanted to translate the Bible. Well, at college, she met a young man named Jim. 
And together with some other students from school, she went on a missionary expedition to the country of Ecuador in South America. And a year into the trip, Jim and Elizabeth were married while ministering to the Quechua Indians, and they had a daughter, Valerie. During that time, they began to pray about taking the gospel of Christ to a fierce, violent, unreached tribe called the Aka Indians. After months of effort and a brief initial contact, Jim Elliott and five other missionaries were ambushed on a beach and killed while attempting to make contact with an Aka village. But remarkably, the story to reach this people group with the gospel doesn't end there. Because Elizabeth refused to give up on the people in that tribe. She continued to live in the region with her daughter, then only three years old, and Rachel Saint, the sister of one of the other murdered missionaries. And while living with the Quechua Indians, two Aka women came and they lived with Elizabeth for a year. During that time, she learned about Aka culture and customs. And armed with that knowledge, she was able to go into that tribe, live with them, and build relationships with that people. She lived in rain-swept huts, subsisted on barbecued monkey limbs and other fare while telling the individuals who killed her husband about Jesus. The tribe saw the forgiveness and the grace that Elizabeth and Rachel extended to them, and many came to Christ. After spending two years with that people, she and her daughter, now age five, returned to America in 1963. And there Elizabeth met Addison Leitch, a theology professor that she married in 1969. But four years later, her second husband lost a battle with cancer and passed away in 1973. Elizabeth eventually remarried again, this time to a hospital chaplain by the name of Lars Gren. And together, they traveled and inspired Christians to passionately follow after God until Elizabeth became ill with dementia in 2004. And for the last decade of her life, she battled that illness until the Lord took her home on June 15th. 2015. In her lifetime, Elizabeth wrote and published 24 books and inspired a generation of Americans that felt a call to missions. As I consider her life and the immense suffering that she endured, I can't help but notice that God used her suffering to help her become more like Jesus. That God used her suffering to spread the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he used it to bless the church as thousands of other missionaries followed in her footsteps. Her suffering, while painful and real, yet temporary, had immense eternal value. As I read about her life, one quote struck me, and I want to close by sharing it with you. She said this, There have been some hard things in my life, of course as there have been in yours. And I cannot say to you, I know exactly what you're going through, but I can say that I know the one who knows. And I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. And if we'll trust him for it, we can come through to the unshakable assurance that he's in charge. He has a loving purpose and he can transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. So let me encourage you this morning to take heart, to be encouraged. If you are suffering this morning, if you are in pain, 
please understand that God is actively working for you. He's working in you. He's working through you for his glory and for your good. May God help us to believe it. May God help us to live it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we consider the truths of Scripture this morning, uh, these are not easy truths, but I do believe that they come out of the text of Scripture. And Father, this morning, I'm confident that there are individuals in this room that are hurting, that are suffering. And Father, I pray that you would help us to take these very simple truths and help us to preach them deep into our own souls. Help us to understand that suffering has eternal value and that you can use it to advance your agenda and help us to focus on the glorious light of eternity. I give you the honor and glory for it. As the piano plays in the quietness of your own heart, let me just encourage you, if you're struggling, suffering, if you're hurting this morning, take it to the Lord. Be encouraged. God is using it. It's not just happening. It has eternal value. If you need to do business with the Lord this morning in the quietness of your own heart as the piano plays, I'd encourage you to just talk to God and do business with Him. Father, I pray that you'll help us to take these simple truths, simple message, but that you'll help us to drive these truths down deep into our souls, deep into our hearts. And as we deal with the reality of suffering and pain, I pray that you would help us to preach these truths to ourselves as we go throughout the week ahead. We'll give you the honor and glory for it because you're the one that deserves it. We ask these things in your name. Amen.